It is human nature, for better or worse, that we, we're kind of reactive. Um, so it, in my case, it did uh, take a, a bit of a crisis, and that is not unusual. There is the fear factor. Hello, ladies and gents. This is Brandon Olin, and welcome to another episode of the Duskbound Podcast, where I interview leading health and wellness professionals to answer the question, why does everybody feel 20 years older than they really are? You'd think people would be living forever with all the health advice that's flying around these days, but that is definitely not the case. If anything, this surplus of often conflicting information just serves to confuse people and makes them give up on their health goals. My aim is to simplify health for you which is why I created the free Duskbound Toolbox, an audio glossary full of explanations of aspects of biology that keep popping up here. You know that stuff that we were supposed to learn in high school biology but didn't really pay attention to? The Toolbox is going to cover that and a whole lot more. So if there's a great episode on how to get better restful sleep that you want to listen to, but you keep hearing talk about circadian rhythms and REM cycles that you don't understand... Just pop open the toolbox and listen to the mini episodes about those topics and bam, now it all makes sense. You'll also get weekly updates on episodes when they air, along with a heads up of which toolbox mini episodes you can listen to beforehand to make the interview that much clearer. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mobility. Our goal here at the Duskbound Podcast is to give you the knowledge you need to stay healthy in our modern sedentary world, and Mobility gives you the tools you need to get there. So if your butt's glued to a chair for 40 hours a week or your eyes are killing you from the UV light assault they're getting from staring at screens all day, Mobility's got you covered. Adjustable height standing desks, wrist rest, UV blocking glasses, they've got it all. So go to the website mobility.co, that's M-O-V-I-L-I-T-Y dot C-O, and use promo code DESKBOUND at checkout to receive 10% off your first order. My guest today is Christine Lehman. Christine is a nutritional therapist who runs the website ReverseDiabetesCoach.com, where she helps people who are suffering from type 2 diabetes or are at the early stages of it. I really enjoyed talking with Christine, as the type of diet that she recommends is the same type that I first adopted uh, to take off the freshman 15 after I finished college. We cover a ton of topics in this episode, including other diseases that walk hand in hand with type 2 diabetes. On the extreme end, that includes things like amputation, blindness, and heart disease, uh, symptoms of early-stage diabetes, and what tests you can have done to know for certain, foods that contribute to type 2, and foods that many people avoid that are actually healthy, and a whole bunch more. So please enjoy this insightful conversation with the reverse diabetes coach, Christine Lehman. All right. Thank you for joining me, Christine. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to be here. Yeah, great to have you. Um, so could you give the listeners a quick uh, overview of you know what you do, how you got to this point? What was sort of your journey that inspired you to do this specifically? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there are two aspects to this. One, I was having my own health crisis. I actually ended up in the emergency room after an episode of AFib or atrial fibrillation. The good wow. news is... It was a one-off, but it was scary. Mm -hmm. And while I was in the hospital, they ran different tests. Uh, one of them being a potassium test, because actually a potassium deficiency can 
mimic some symptoms of AFib, but the passing out part in particular. So they put me on potassium pills, and I thought, well, that's a very short-term solution. So Mm -hmm. I started researching food sources of potassium and incorporated that into my diet. And just FYI, bananas are not the top-ranked potassium source. They're like number (laughs) one on a list. But everyone, I'm not saying don't eat them at all, but they're also a little more sugary. So as far as natural, but it's still a little more sugar. Um, so I uh, started doing that, and then it was kind of a slow journey. I wasn't feeling well. I still felt weak even after that. I just was a combination of stressors in my life. My mother had had a major stroke and was paralyzed, and I was kind of the major caregiver for her. And um, I'm sorry to hear. So I think I was fortunate that I found a health club in my area. Now, I'm in Northern Virginia. And the health club had a nutritionist on staff. And when I saw her and read her bio, I just thought, I need to go see her. And it turns out she's a nutritional therapy practitioner, which is the same credential I have, which is very holistic, tends to follow kind of a paleo-like diet, uh, and it also is designed actually to control your blood sugar, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Mm-hmm. I had also um, struggled with weight uh, the last the five years preceding that, especially in graduate school. And um, so I just knew I needed to get serious. I had not I could say I ate pretty healthy, but I didn't know certainly even a fraction of what I know now. So right, right. I was eating a lot of salads. Um, I just didn't like to cook, so I had to change my whole relationship with food, and that's an important thing for people to think about, their relationship with food. Mm-hmm. And so I, she gave me recipes, and I just started down that path and um, saw results fairly quickly. I just Once you get nutrients, which basically are vitamins and minerals, into your body, it just gives you more energy. You just start to feel better, and it's a way of detoxing the blood sugar control diet. And uh, so also the weight started to peel off. And and uh, I was surprised at how fast, actually. That's a <laughs> nice little side effect. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was a side effect of my new diet, and I started shopping and cooking at home and basically all the things that I encourage my clients to do. Um, so that led me – I got – I felt so good and got such good results over that summer, and this was around 2012, that I decided to go ahead and enroll in the same school as my own um, nutritionist, again, a nutritional therapy practitioner, to become one, an NTP. And that's, mm-hmm. so that's what I did in 2013, and then I also eased out of my full-time job and, and started uh, working as a, a nutrition therapist and seeing I've had a client practice now for the past uh, four to five years and thoroughly enjoy helping people. And as you know, I specialize in reversing diabetes, but I, I see uh, clients with related conditions, which of course include obesity, um, sometimes high cholesterol and high t- triglycerides, um, can include uh uh, fatty, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and so on. So, it's uh, 
It's a complex disease, um, and I see people with related conditions, even polycystic ovarian syndrome and so on. Anyway, that's my journey story. (laughs) Excellent. So all of those other things that um, you say, the other symptoms or problems that you see cropping up in people who tend to also suffer from type 2, um, are those all things that would, you would say fall under metabolic syndrome? Are those all under that big umbrella term? Yes, metabolic syndrome encompasses a lot of, uh, sort of a constellation, if you will, of symptoms. So uh, often, yes, high cholesterol, uh, being overweight, sometimes it's called um, a visceral fat, it's abdominal fat. So you don't even have to be very overweight to have abdominal fat. It means that your fat is concentrated in your abdomen. Mm-hmm. But the tricky thing and the thing that can be uh, risky is that it wraps itself around your vital organs. So that is what can really lead eventually to heart disease as well. So even just taking 10 pounds off, you know, losing the, the abdominal fat can, can help. And then, of course, your blood sugar starts to get elevated, um, which is typically a pre-diabetic stage. But that's also when, and people often don't realize this, but insulin resistance can set in even in the pre-diabetes or slash metabolic syndrome stage. So all those things can set the stage for some major problems, including type 2 diabetes. You can also have... um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, and there, the good news is there are some tests for all of this, and it's very important that people get an annual physical and get the, the lab work done um, uh, to make sure to, for early detection. That's the key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very much a double-edged sword that, you know, your type of approach and this sort of uh, paleo low-carb approach in general, it won't just help you with you know type 2 diabetes, but it's going to have all these other benefits. You can start losing the weight and sort of reversing the risk factors for cardiovascular disease and things like that, which for those who get on board with this sort of approach, it is excellent because they're you know eliminating the chance of all this grief and all these other problems in their life. But when people don't make these changes, they don't just often suffer from one problem, they get sort of, you know, bombarded with a whole number of different problems that tend to walk hand in hand. Right. I would say that's true. Um, the good news, too, is there's a lot of research that backs up diet. Even the Mediterranean diet has been shown to get some good results, which is, is pretty high in fat, actually. So, mm-hmm. And we'll talk more about diet, but, yeah. you know, it's very important that the way I sort of think about Uh, Diet is in macronutrient categories, which are carbs, fats, and proteins, and make the distinction between healthy and unhealthy proteins or fats and carbs. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But I think, frankly, the regulation by the Food and Drug Administration is kind of slow to, for example, (laughs) just finally eliminate trans fats, and there's been research showing this is really bad for people for like 10 years, and so it's um, it's important that people, frankly, see a professional as much as just to have nothing else to learn. Also, what and we'll talk about this: what they should avoid 
uh, most of it is what you should be doing, but there are things you should avoid doing as well when it comes to diet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's uh, not even get into the whole trans fat thing because yeah, I'm sure that lobbying from fast food had a good bit to do with them taking so long to admit that that was bad for you, which... You know, we don't want to turn this into a discussion about politics, so we'll we'll put that aside for now. Um, one thing that you know, it's tragic that it has to come to this, um, but it's what I found a great way to sort of inspire people to really lead the charge and do good work. Is it's tragic that you had to you know go through this very trying ordeal to discover this sort of approach. But I found that when people sort of pursue this type of field as a way of solving their own problem, they tend to bring a lot more passion and innovation to the field than otherwise, which is kind of what it sounds like has happened with you. No, I think that's very true. I mean, I have sort of, I'm always in sort of two minds about this because I see this. It, it is human nature, for better or worse, that we, we're kind of reactive. Um, so it, in my case, it did uh, take a, a bit of a crisis, and that is not unusual. There is the fear factor. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've had, I can tell you many stories of clients who've come to me almost in a panic because they've gotten diagnosed with type 2 or you know, they've waited a couple years after the diagnosis even. Of course, things got worse, not better. Um, sometimes people are in denial. Um, so I think there are a lot of reasons that can lead up to it. It's mainly lifestyle, though. That's the good thing. You, you can prevent and correct with lifestyle. Um, and, it, and as I was saying earlier, uh, maybe we can talk about the test because this, that's the way to catch things and to prevent. And so there is a test for prediabetes. There are tests for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, There are tests for insulin resistance. So I think the sooner people, you know, that's one thing to do um, as part of your annual physical is get the the lab work done. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing really is to think more preventively. So that goes back to what I was saying. We tend to be as a society, it doesn't matter what area of life it is, policy or whatever, we tend to be reactive, right? We mm-hmm. we in high gear <laughs> when there is a crisis situation, and but that is not the best approach, really. The best approach is to eat, you know, and to have a healthy lifestyle, as you were, I think, saying, and that will go a long way in preventing all these things. I mean, I wish I had known what I know now, even in my twenties or thirties. That would have saved me a lot of heartache. Um, you're kind of playing catch up, but it's better, even if you're, you know, 50, or to say, okay, you know, people are living a lot longer now. I'm gonna, you know, I want to live at least another 30 years, mm-hmm. uh, maybe 40. It's not unusual for people to live well into their 80s and even 90s now. Yeah. Uh, and to say, you know, how am I going to uh, get into good shape for the next, you know? Part, put like part two <laughs> of my life. So the good news is it's never too late, but the more you can prevent going down, let's say, you know, if you can catch it and even pre-diabetes and head off type 2 diabetes, or you can head off heart disease, you know. So the more you can do to prevent uh, these problems from happening, the healthier you're going to be, of course, 
and you're going to avoid all these complications, which we haven't even touched on. I mean, the complications of type 2 diabetes are horrible. Uh, Absolutely, people can yeah. Blind, they can, uh, they can have neuropathy, nerve damage in their legs. I, there's a dear woman I visit in a nursing home who had to have her legs amputated below the knees because she didn't know she had type 2 diabetes. And, uh, yeah, so it's really sad. I'm just reminded of how serious this can be every time I see her. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have diabetic glaucoma. You can have liver disease, kidney disease. Uh, some people whose type 2 diabetes is uncontrolled, they end up on dialysis for the rest of their life. Uh, it can really, really mess with your metabolism. Um, you can land you in the hospital. Uh, and so it's just so important to, to manage and, and get it under control. And as I said, the sooner you, you know, some of the risk factors are it runs in families, a sibling or a parent has had it, gestational diabetes when you've been had a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. It's pregnancy-induced, basically. But... I had a client who had two pregnancies with gestational diabetes, and that put her at high risk. And she did eventually, I think a couple of years passed, and she did diabetes. So it's very important to, to think about your risk factors and then to, pay even, to be even more vigilant and, and talk to your doctor and get the tests and just kind of watch it. Because even if you're just a few points into pre-diabetes, you want to get yourself back into the normal range. I mean, this happened to me once. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm really glad I know this. You know, I was one point <laughs> over. Yeah, yeah. And, but it was a way, you know, that alone was enough to jolt me into, okay, you know, I didn't realize that I had maybe added a little, was having a little bit more of a, of a sweet, you know, I, I thought of it, you know, it's twice a week or something. But these things can creep up on you, and if you don't get tested, you don't know what your numbers are. Absolutely, yeah. The um, the lady who had her legs, who had to have her legs amputated, that's a tragic story, but it sort of segues pretty well into what I wanted to ask next, sorry, ask next, because that's, this is the sort of thing that I think a lot of people are kind of unfamiliar with, and they think it's the sort of thing that, oh, that won't happen to me. I, you know, I wasn't born with it because they think of type one diabetes or they just think that, you know, they won't ever realize that it's happening. So if somebody's very early pre-diabetic or becoming pre-diabetic, are there some um, symptoms that they could pay attention to? Like if you feel this, then you should probably get tested. Yeah, I think, um, there can be a range of symptoms, everything from being thirsty to frequent urination. But I think what's hard about that is that it kind of could be, uh, you could be, for example, it, the key would be if it's an ongoing kind of thing for you because we all get dehydrated once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so if it's just an occasional thing, I wouldn't worry about it. But if it's you're realizing this is becoming your new normal, then it's time to, you know, raise that with your doctor. 
Um, but the best way, if you're having an in, you know, most people, in fact, I encourage everyone to get an annual physical mm-hmm. um, and have your lab work. Make sure you get, you know, you're getting your lab work done every year. Because um, it's pretty routine now to have your A1C tested and a fasting blood glucose. And I recommend both because that way you can confirm the diagnosis. And um, I can include my chart with the numbers of the different categories, so what normal is, what pre-diabetic is, and what type 2 diabetes is. Um, the other thing, I, and I, wanted, I forgot to mention here, is low-grade inflammation is common among people with uh, metabolic syndrome. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people think inflammation is now like one of the most toxic conditions that people have. And it, it is common to have with various diseases, So also with insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. So there is a test for that called C-reactive protein, CRP. Mm-hmm. And I recommend people get that tested. Um, if you have osteoarthritis or other inflammatory diseases, you, you definitely want to have that tested as well. Because the diet, the strategies that I talk about also can help reduce inflammation. Great, great. Are there any other steps that um, people should go through to to see if they are becoming pre-diabetic or other tests they should ask for? Or um, is that pretty much this is what you should do to find out, and then if you find out you are pre-diabetic or diabetic, you know, where do they go from there? Right. Those are the main tests. Um, just to, to add to what I was saying about non-alcoholic uh, fatty liver disease, the routine tests for that are albumin and bilirubin, I think is how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Um, I will include a link for your show notes about that goes more in depth on that because there are some other things people can do. Yeah, it sounds like um, are these all things that their primary care physician can add on to their normal blood work and tests? Um, and could that we... one, right? That one is pretty routine now. I mean, if you just mm-hmm. ask for a routine, you know, blood work workup or panel. Um, I would definitely make sure, I mean, if your physician, frankly, isn't testing for your blood sugar, I, I question, you know, why maybe, they would be doing it. Yeah, so, maybe time to get a new physician. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's just becoming so standard now. But mm-hmm. if they don't, they may only say, oh, let's just test your A1C. So the difference between the A1C, let me just explain that a little bit. The A1C, the reason I like that one the most, if you have to pick one, get that one, is because it's a retrospective, meaning um, it captures three months of data. It captures uh, the blood sugar coats on the red blood cells. So it's able to measure that and see how, and take an average, the number is actually an average of that three months kind of um, time frame. So, you know, retro meaning looking back for the last three months of your diet, if you will, or, mm-hmm. you know, of, of your sugar level. So that one I like because the fasting blood glucose really only measures that particular day, you know, what your blood sugar is the day of the test. That's fascinating. I had no idea you could do that. It's almost like how, um, I don't know what specialist would do this. This has nothing to do with health, by the way, just a an analogy I think that might help make it clear how 
um, people or scientists, environmentalists can tell what the atmospheric conditions and the world were like based on the rings that they see when they cut into the center of a tree. You know how you can see like, oh, during this time frame in the world, um, this fossilized tree shows that this is what the oxygen level was. Are you saying that the coating that blood sugar leaves on red blood cells can give a doctor a good idea of what the past three months of their diet and health effects or diet and health I, practice was like? It won't go into detail on their diet, but it is a way to measure your blood sugar levels. It is a, a fairly accurate way. Um, oh. And it takes, uh, which of course is impacted, right, by your diet mm -hmm. as well as some other things, which we'll talk about. And did you say so, that was the A1C test? Oh, the A1C, capital A, letter um, number one, C, lowercase C, A1C. And it's actually hemoglobin A1C, but n most people forget to put, so the hemoglobin stands for your red blood cells, basically. Mm-hmm. So if you look at most people, I, I, just as a little exercise, go and take out, you know, that sheet that has your lab work on it and see if it's on there. Great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd asked about the different um, things, the normal tests and the ones that you might have to ask for. We can put a list up on the show notes on the website. I just think it would be good for people to have this list of these are the specific things they should ask for when they go to the doctor. So we'll put that all up in the notes so that they can check that later. Um, so those, you know, are good tests to do to see if this is a problem you need to worry about or consider. Now, what would you recommend as your approach? How, well, first of all, you know, what is sort of the standard, the traditional approach and how is your approach different and what does that traditional approach miss that your approach addresses? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I think one of the things I want to differentiate between myself and perhaps somebody who's gone the registered dietitian route is that they sometimes still, and I have to be careful here, you know, I'm not saying every registered dietitian does right, this, right. but my experience when people come to me, having seen a registered dietitian in a hospital, for example, um, or even, even you know, personal trainer, um, what they're missing there is they're not keeping up with the latest research. For example, I've seen instances of margarine being recommended. I've seen instances oh, Lord. of eggs not including egg yolks, just egg whites. I've seen instances of a lot of starchy carbs. Even at, This is a great story. So even a client of mine who was making progress, but her physician was sort of pressing her to enroll in a diabetes education program at their local, uh, the local hospital where she lived. And she did it just to kind of say, okay, I'm willing to play ball here. And she tied, tried it for one week. And I, so I, I always ask my clients to submit a food journal. And actually it's more, more than that, but for sake of the story, we'll say food journal. And mm -hmm. I started noticing, she didn't tell me this. She just did it. And then I'm seeing like all this bread and starchy carbs and stuff that I, you know, was not part of her diet on there. And so I was like, what is going on? And then she filled me in and told me she had enrolled in this program and she was starting to gain back weight. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So we 
Actually, I didn't have to say anything. She didn't feel as well. She was. She definitely needed to lose. You know, she lost had lost some weight already. Mm-hmm. Tried to gain weight, and so it spoke for itself. I didn't even need to say. You know, you need to stop doing that. Um, so of course she's just. In fact, her her uh, physician assistant who really treats her for the most part was so happy with the results she was seeing with this client whose name is Chris that she started referring clients to me. Oh, that's always nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so even people who may be sort of naysayers or very skeptical of a more paleo or certainly low carb and I'm not talking ketogenic here, um, approach come around when they see that it actually, you know, it works. And the numbers, frankly, speak for themselves because I do have people keep, re- you know, retest their blood sugar levels, mm-hmm. retest their cholesterol, which is also part of, of a standard physical these days, the lab work. Um, and, of course, you know, their weight as well. So obesity is certainly a, a, a common feature, but not always. I had one client who was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and did not meet that almost a stereotype or profile. She she was quite within the normal range of weight, so she did not come to me for that. She just came for me to, to work on the diabetes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because some people, they get tired, they kind of grumble about this, who are not overweight, like, why <laughs> does everybody think, you know, you're overweight? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they're a minority. I think it's like... Seventy percent, maybe, are certainly overweight, and unfortunately, a lot of probably fifty percent are obese. Mm-hmm. So the that I get are usually obese for the most part, but not always. That was my point. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, something interesting that you mentioned there. How they the people who sort of follow the traditional approach, you know, that might be say not to uh, not to throw any stones here, but people who follow the recommendations of, say, the American Diabetes Association. I've heard some people in this field um, cast their doubts on the validity of that organization's approach, but it's kind of ties into what you said earlier about how the FDA has just now gotten around to admitting that trans fat is bad for you. This is the sort of thing that... I think a couple years ago, to be fair, but, you know, but it's slow. Slow. They're slow. (laughs) Yeah, they're... the. The big organizations are often very slow to adapt to the latest research and the things that we're finding out now. And you're just starting to see them um, get on board with the idea that maybe fat, you know, dietary fat isn't bad for you and that it was just trans fat. Like saturated fat has been demonized for years, but I've been reading plenty that has indicated that it doesn't have any of these negative health effects that people are claiming. Well, you know, this is what I was saying, the devil's in the details. So there's always, there are two issues when you're talking about diet um, and and health health aspects. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and food in particular. So one of them is the quality, and the second thing is the quantity. So with saturated fat, it is very important to make sure you're getting the healthy fats that I talked about. So and sourcing your food is very important. Um so, for example, uh, saturated fat can be found in things like coconut oil, butter, uh, 
and meat as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's important. What I haven't seen enough evidence, though, that will push me beyond saying 10%. So 10% of your diet uh, calories should come from saturated fat. So, or no more than one-third of your fat. So there are different kinds of fats. Mm -hmm. There's the unsaturated fats, and those include omega-3s. So, and monounsaturated. So poly and mono make up the unsaturated fats. That Mm -hmm. should be the majority of your diet. Right. No question about it. Uh, EVOO, extra virgin olive oil, is a good fat. You should definitely... I I have... um, Three or four kinds of fats that I cook with. Um, I have only I only get grass-fed dairy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I use it in small amounts. So I I have butter, but I use it sparingly. Um, and I use EVOO probably the most. And then after that, a uh, coconut oil because I like to put that a dab of that in my water when I'm making steel-cut oats. Okay. So. You know, so when we talk about paleo and the blood sugar control diet, which is very similar, I think it's a great way for people to detox because when they're coming off the standard American diet, which we know has been with the unhealthy carbs, you know, a lot of commercial packaged food just frankly has crap in it, (laughs) but it's sugar high in fat and often high in salt. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because the food industry knows that is what tastes good. It's not, there's no surprise, you know, if you go to McDonald's that things are, you know, very salty and have more fat content typically. They may have been improving that, but, uh, you know, until recently, you know, fast food and whatever is, and even packaged foods. If you just read the labels, which I strongly encourage people to do, read the nutrition facts, you'll see the breakdown and you'll see that it's often very high in sugar. So I think one of the biggest problems with the American diet is that sugar is just added to everything. And, you know, it's been bred into apples. You know, you can't, it's hard to find an apple even that is not like, you know, Honeycrisp. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, again, you can do that. But the tart apples, the berries, you know, this wasn't the way our ancestors ate. They didn't have all these sweetened artificially sweetened foods. They just ate the vegetables and the, you know, from the, right off from the ground, and they they ate, um, uh, you know, their fruit. It was berries, typically. And berries have a lot of antioxidants, so I highly recommend berries. Um, and that people avoid the highly sweetened food, uh, sweetened fruit. But the thing is that there's so much added sugar. So we were talking before the show about fruit juice. Well, you think, oh, fruit juice, you know, cranberry juice or apple juice, healthy. Look mm-hmm. at the read label. The sugar content is like a, usually around 20 grams. Yeah, it's obscene. Irving, who needs, you know, fruit is sweet, usually sweet enough. Now, an exception might be prune juice, you know. But, <laughs> but, but you know, for most of us, we're not going to buy that. So it just, you're better off eating the natural fruit, which also gives you fiber. So fiber is also very important for a diet. And that's why, frankly, I have steel-cut oats. It's kind of my, it's gluten-free. Um, it has the most nutrients. It doesn't have any, you know, even those packets of oatmeal, right? Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. typically have brown sugar or other things added to them. Same thing with yogurt. Things that normally would be healthy by themselves. There's artificial flavors. There's added sugar in the, you know, they have to make it like, I don't know, add so much to it. And then there's that little honey cup on the side, which is far too much honey. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's fine to have a little bit of pure raw honey, but you need to limit it. It's like concentrated. It is sugar. It's natural sugar. But you don't want more than like a teaspoon a day of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's funny that a lot of people will drink juice thinking that it's healthy. But, you know, if you look, as you said, at a, say, a bottle of orange juice or apple juice or something like that and look at the sugar content, oftentimes an eight-ounce an eight ounce glass would have the same sugar content as eight ounces of like Coca-Cola would. And like, wait, isn't this supposed to be healthy? Well, maybe it isn't. Right. Exactly. And the same thing with yogurt. I mean, I've done a whole blog post on just, you know, healthy, what, how to avoid added sugar. And there are plenty of healthy sounding things like health bars, right? Mm -hmm. Just read the label. You know, a lot of those are high in sugar, People think, oh, protein, you know, yes, you're going to get some protein, but you're also going to get this other stuff. So you're you're basically better off making your own or finding as pure ingredients as possible um, so that you don't end up with all these added uh, items in, in the bars, for example. Yeah, my go-to is I make uh, homemade peanut butter cups, actually, which might not sound like the healthiest thing, but... Um, I'll make the the chocolate exterior bit with a mix of 100% uh, pure cacao dark chocolate and coconut oil and a little bit of cocoa powder added to it. And then, you know, organic, natural almond butter for the inside. And it has a little bit of sweetness to it, but not a lot. And it's mostly healthy fats for the, you know, the most part anyway. Right. What's the percent cacao that you're using? It's, I mean, the percent of cacao, not, Yeah. I believe it's 100%, but I would have to run downstairs and double-check the actual amount of the wrapper. Oh, it's hard to get 100%, meaning the the percent, like dark chocolate, for example. Maybe Mm -hmm. um, typically you can get up to 85%. I was just curious. Um, I'd I'd recommend somewhere at least minimum 70% because the rest of it, what people don't realize, and I'm talking just so I'm clear, cacao is an ingredient in dark chocolate. Mm Mm-hmm. It's fine to have a little dark chocolate, but so the higher the ratio of cacao means the less sugar mm-hmm. in it. Um, but that sounds no. And pe- so let's you know going back to healthy fats, um, coconut oil is one, but it's higher in saturated fat. It's actually the highest in saturated fat of any of those that I was recommending. Butter is not as high as coconut oil. Um, so as long as you're not, you know, having like, I don't know, a plate full of those. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as much as I would like to, no, that's not, uh, not yeah. part of my daily eating have habits. I understand too. There are a lot, it's healthy, but there are a lot of fat calories and peanuts as well. So what I always tell the rule of thumb for my clients, what I tell them is, you know, have like no more than a handful a day at the most, even a half a handful, because those are healthy fats and it's important to have you know, almonds and or pecans or walnuts, mm-hmm. which well, you can put ones, in your, um, well, peanut I, butter cups I, if you want it. But to understand right there, you know, you've got peanut butter you've, or almond butter, which are fine. I try to recommend organic, you know, for all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But you just have to understand small, that's the quantity aspect, small portions, especially if you're trying to lose weight. I'm not, I would just frankly tell a client maybe one or two a day at the most, you know. Yeah, yeah, I generally have one or maybe two as a treat after a meal, and they're pretty small, so I don't think it's too bad, but, you know. No, it is. Again, this is where it's, you know, my program is tailored to the individual because everybody, you know, there is no one size fits all here. For someone in a, you look fine and, you know, the little bit I've seen of your photo or, um, you know, but for somebody who's trying to really lose weight, obviously you have to limit that as well. So typically I recommend just, you know, a little bit of dark chocolate. Yeah, it's a great way to sort of satisfy that sweet tooth without diving off the deep end and eating a whole pint of Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> and you don't want Ben and Jerry's. I, I hate that. This is a sad thing. It's like I know too much now. So mm-hmm. it makes it really hard, like if I go to the beach. Well, what I do is I find the the most pure, you know, ice cream. There are some, luckily some some family-owned ice cream places where, you know, they just do it the old-fashioned way. And so Ben and Jerry's, frankly, has a lot of stuff in there, you know, additives. Yeah, it's like ice cream in air quotes, but to be honest, half of it or more than half of it is just bits of chopped up candy that they jam in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So not to say, you know, you can't ever have ice cream, but again, quality, quality, meaning, you know, less sugar, less uh, artificial you know, ingredients. And typically, you know, when you're reading nutrition facts, you want to read the nutrition facts, which tells you the carbs, the fats, and the proteins, but below that, there's the ingredients. And often, if you see a lot of things with OSE at the end, like dextrose, maltose, you Mm. know, uh, and it's like more than five or even three, you know, that's a sign that maybe there's a lot of chemicals being added. It can be sugar, it can be other things are being added to that. So I've learned to, one of the things, components of my program that I spend time on is teaching people how to read, you know, those labels. Because really, that's your guide, if you will, when you're going grocery shopping, if you want to buy any packet, you know, uh, non-homemade food. Yeah, they're they're essentially trying to take or they're trying to recreate something that is traditionally unhealthy, but recreate it in a healthy way. So they jam a lot of those things in there to sort of try to cover that gap between the healthy foods and the unhealthy flavor. But half of the time, those additives end up, you know, being just as bad and in many cases worse. Yeah. So I think um, it is important, you know, to think about how you shop and, and um, I, you know, I can just tell you that I personally shop at various sources. So most of what I try to do is get most of it from the farmers market. I am fortunate that there is a farmers market every Saturday, even through the winter. And uh, I live right by Old Town, Alexandria, so I'm mm-hmm. able. To, it's part of the game. My morning, my Saturday morning ritual. Um, I make up my shopping list. I think through what recipes I'm going to make, and then write the you know any ingredients I need. Obviously, like if I make um, there's some great make ahead recipes, you know, like crockpot recipes. I love so the crockpot. I love the crockpot. So make cocovin. Um There's a great book called Make Ahead Paleo, which is you know um, um, I want to say. 
uh, I'll, I'll get the name of the author in a minute, but um, that has wonderful crockpot recipes, and uh, there's no shortage of, of good paleo recipes out there now. But anyway, so just as an example, you know, I, I had to, I got my whole chicken from my farmer, and what I love about my farmer, my farmer, but <laughs> the farmer I use yeah. is that actually Mennonite is kind of an interesting story. His whole family is Mennonite. And what I love is he went through the whole rigorous process of being certified organic. It took five years. There was some expense involved, but the certification requires them to be environmentally uh, sensitive. Uh, They have to follow like certain drainage procedures so it doesn't contaminate the water. Um, and also how they do the soil. And he is a grass-fed farmer. Grass-fed and pastured are often terms that are interchangeable. Mm-hmm. But it's important to actually... I actually interviewed him on my on my former podcast <laughs> because <laughs> it was so interesting to hear about how his philosophy of raising animals... So one of the other things that I love is that he treats his animals very humanely. Um, that's important to me. I care about it, at all living beings. And he, so when they are, for example, cows, when they are ready for slaughter, uh, he uses a stun gun so they don't feel any pain. It's like a way yeah, of certain not. Yeah, and that, that really sort of endeared. And, and up to that point, you know, they're allowed they're, they have a good living condition. So one of the problems that we have with these factory farms where um, they're given a lot of, the animals are penned, they're in, living in too close quarters, right? They're penned in, their pens are, there are too many of them, they're crowded conditions. Mm-hmm. And also they're not, they're being fed corn or grain, they're not being pastured, which is humane because then they get to go out, you know, Animals are meant to be out <laughs> roaming around. They're yeah. not meant to be penned in all the time or even penned in, in in unsanitary or unhealthy conditions. And that's the reason why they often get sick. And then they're given a, a lot of antibiotics. And then they're, you know, they're pushed to be bigger than there should be on a, on a scale and a schedule that is abnormal. So they're given a lot of growth hormones. So you see now it's becoming it's sad, I think, that we have to pay more for organic and we have to pay more for, you know, no antibiotics. And you see that now as an advertising thing. But people are demanding more and more that their food, frankly, be healthier. And so hence Whole Foods, hence organic stores and so on. But we pay more for that. And it's sort of backwards to me. It's like... You know, and that's a deterrent for some people because they're like, I, you know, I can't afford organic. And mm-hmm. I understand that. You know, I've made food, healthy food, a priority for me. I'm, I'm willing to pay more and do less entertainment, as an example. You know, yes, I have Netflix, but, you know, at seven ninety nine a month, I don't go to movies. I just don't go out to movies. I, for me, I'd rather spend that money on my healthy food. So I think part of this is, you know, your priorities, you want, you know, is healthy food a priority? But I'm not saying that I, you know, it's I'm not aware of that it's more expensive either, but I've chosen to make that a priority for myself. 
Yeah, it's very interesting that it's something that a lot of people viewed, I mean, almost as if it was ridiculous and they couldn't believe this. And now it's becoming commonly accepted that, yes, the the living conditions of the food that you end up or of the animals that end up becoming the food you eat affects the nutrient quality and how good that food is for you. It seems odd to people that, you know, a cow that's cramped up in a warehouse that never gets any sunlight would be less healthy than a cow that gets to roam around in the sun and just eat grass all day. But it's, you know, they end up being, you know, they're healthier, the quality of their meat ends up making it better and healthier for the person eating it as well. Um, And there's a fence. That's what what they eat affects the nutrients, exactly Mm -hmm. what just saying yeah yeah yeah. one of the first things that i ever checked out on this was a documentary called food inc have you ever watched it um i haven't watched that one no no that one's on uh it's actually on netflix for free so you can definitely you can check it out with uh with your subscription but it's an excellent excellent documentary and it not only shows sort of the inhumane conditions that many animals are raised in, but kind of the how the system is all a bit corrupt in general, which I think is just good for people to be more aware of, um, because then that can sort of inform their decisions going forward on this topic. Oh, absolutely. And um, it is um, also important that you um, select, you know, a farmer, their co-ops, there are other ways to do it. You can sign up for that if you can't get to a farmer's market. Um, you can even have it delivered. Um, there's, uh, I'll, I'll include this resource, but there's also, um, I think it's called Wellness Meats USA, something like that. And you can mm-hmm. order it online as well. So I think, you know, even with technology, people just have more options than they used to. Um, but the other thing I would say is even it's, it goes beyond the meats, and which I'm, I'm lumping poultry into you know the category of meats right now. But uh, it, it, even something like kefir. When I interviewed um, his name's Kinley, so his whole family comes down from Pennsylvania. I admire their dedication to this. Oh. <laughs> they drive down to Virginia from Pennsylvania every Saturday morning, and they've become very popular. So he does, he makes his own kefir, which is a cultured milk drink, um, and it has so many probiotics in it. it. Compared to typical yogurt has three strains of, of probiotics in it, and probiotics, just to refresh people's um, memory, is a, a way, it's healthy bacteria, it's a way of populating your gut with healthy bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, between our diet and antibiotics, we have all probably have a shortage of of healthy bacteria because antibiotics, in particular, tends to push. It unfortunately eliminates some of the good bacteria along with the bad. Right, right. So uh, you know, even uh, my uh, nurse practitioner uh, at CVS Mini Clinic, when I've gone in the past, will say, you know, if they give you an antibiotic, even they know to say, get take a probiotic now. You know. Mm-hmm. So it's um, but anyway, so I noticed like I used to get laryngitis um, every winter, <clears throat> and now I haven't got, since I've been doing this, his taking uh, in, and drinking the kefir loaded with probiotics. So kefir has about it, it, thirty-six strains of probiotics in comparison. It, it's wow. really, 
really significant. And I even asked him, because kombucha is another fermented drink, right, that's mm-hmm. mainstream. And so he had kombucha there. And I said, what would you recommend for the most probiotics? And he said, basically, kombucha, he said, was sugary, more like sugary water, which I was surprised that he said that. But um, so that certainly solidified my decision to keep with the kefir. And um, so that's, you know, we talk at the beginning of the show about paleo. There's primal, um, and primal allows cultured dairy, including yogurt. And I'm not saying, you know, if you can't get a hold of a good kefir. Now, mine is, you know, it's plain, and it has, uh, or it may have vanilla, but it's like really no sugar, no artificial anything. That's the other thing. He is very, he's a purist when it comes to how he grows you know, how he creates his food and how he, the process that he uses. Mm-hmm. So I have also learned that not everybody at the farmer's market is organic. He's, in fact, one of the few that is um, and who has that certification because for some farmers it's just too much. They don't want to deal with that. So it's important to to ask questions, not to assume that everybody at the farmer's market is doing everything in in an organic way, because that's not true, and certainly not unless the whole farmers market is sort of you know is organic and they can document it. Um, it but a minimum, you have to ask. Now, some may be organic and they just didn't go through the certification process, but you 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 won't know that unless you ask questions. And that's how I found out that there were certain people. A fair number of actually vendors at my market when it comes to produce are not organic. Yeah, that's an interesting interesting point you bring up um, because that's something I've seen coming out even amongst you know regular brands in the store that they might um, claim that say they're gluten free or that they are organic free range raised and then. You know, a few weeks or a month later, you see some big news story come out about how, oh, there actually weren't that thing. Um, and I think a farmer's market is great because you can ask those questions. The person is standing right in front of you, but you definitely don't have that luxury at the supermarket when you're looking at, you know, a gluten-free cereal or something like that. So two things I would say. One, just to finish on the certification, there is the USDA Um which has their own certification process, and that they do have a, a, um, a symbol for that, a stamp that gets um, added to, for example, a good one, good one to look at would be fruit, which comes, you know, in those plastic packages, right? So mm-hmm. I only buy organic, so I look for that USDA symbol. That's how I know it's organic. But most supermarkets now say organic, but look for that. Look for the USDA symbol because they do have a pretty rigorous, that's the same process that my farmer friend had to go through. So it is rigorous. But it's, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, so it's definitely good to look for the USDA stamp. I'd say that many supermarkets probably aren't as stringent about, you know, slapping the word organic in front of, something that they sell there, uh, not as strict as the USDA is anyway. That's correct. I mean, they they have to 
if it's USDA certified, that's kind of like the gold standard. They shouldn't be marketing it organic if it's not, of course. The gluten-free is interesting, too, because people think gluten-free is healthy. But when you think about it, often uh, snacks, for example, they'll say gluten-free or cookies. <laughs> but, you know, it, that's just one little piece of it. And it, really gluten-free is, helps with inflammation, um, a lot of people have, as I was saying earlier, chronic inflammation. Those people, gluten can be a real trigger for inflammation. So going gluten-free, yes, but that's that's not sugar. Sugar-free is not artificial, but just low sugar or sugar-free is the goal as well. And as I was saying earlier, um, healthy healthy fats, but also with dairy, I limit my dairy pretty much to the kefir, the cultured dairy, with a little exception, which would be the whole dairy, uh, whole fat dairy, that's all the farmer has anyway, is um, a small little uh, uh, pint, half pint maybe, um, that I use a tablespoon in my coffee. So we were talking about coffee earlier. The Mm -hmm. paleo... In paleo world, you would only have, you would be dairy-free and you would only use something like coconut oil. There's this uh, Bulletproof, I think it's called Bulletproof coffee. coffee, yeah. Uh, I I think I had it when I went to Paleo FX a couple years ago in Austin because that's what all, the, all, of course, the vendors were for paleo. Um, mm-hmm. But I personally, I don't have, you see, I don't have, and this is important, you know, where it comes down to the individual. I am not lactose intolerant or have a milk allergy, which I've had clients who have those, and of course they should be off dairy, right? But even people lactose intolerance can tolerate a little bit of cultured milk if they really want it. Um, It's very important because, you know, there's calcium in dairy. So if you're not going that route, and and I think this needs to be talked about a little more in the paleo world, you know, when you eliminate part of a food group, what does that do to your nutrition? So if you eliminate dairy, you better impute. There are other plant sources of calcium can be found in kale, to some degree spinach, but it's, you know, it's not as absorbed by the body as the calcium in dairy. So then you you can compensate it for it with a supplement. But there's, you know, I went through this because I was diagnosed fairly recently with late um, osteopenia. And I've had to rethink, you know, how how I get my calcium. And that's a whole nother, probably a whole nother show because, you know, you need vitamin D to help absorb it. And so a really good supplement, I found a really good supplement on my own. Um, but, you know, that we can talk more about supplements if there are times now. We can save that for another day because uh, I use that also as part of my approach to diabetes. Um, it's, it's diet, exercise, stress management, and supplements. So if somebody, for example, is not on, hopefully they're not on metformin, if, but some people are. And then, you know, I use a supplement like berberine to help also control their blood sugar. Hmm, I hadn't <laughs> heard of that one. 
Interesting, interesting. Yeah, a lot of things have come up that I think would definitely warrant another episode. I mean, we've got supplements. There's a million different ways we could discuss the subject of inflammation. You know, you've got your gut health, your omega-3s and 6s and all that. So uh, we might have to dive into that another day. Um, I know you said that uh, you only had a certain amount of time for this, so I want to be respectful of your time. So um, just a few other things I want to go over real quick. Um, So as far as you know, type 2 diabetes as a whole goes, if you had to put it on one thing, obviously it is a multifactorial thing, but what do you think is the aspect of most people's lives or modern life in general that is the biggest contributing factor to type 2? Would you say it's like diet in general, sugar specifically, or something else entirely? I think sugar is one, if not the major problem with the standard American diet. Um, And there, that certainly can be corrected. A lot of it is, frankly, cooking yourself because that gives you control, right? If mm-hmm. you um, and you source your food well, and then that that solves at least most of the problem right there. You obviously need to find healthy recipes, and for the most part, I do agree with paleo. I want to be clear. You know, we were talking about crockpot recipes and so on, and I. People can go to, I have recipes under my resource tab on my website. Mm-hmm. And so these are all recipes I've tested myself. Frankly, if I don't like it, it doesn't get in there. So, <laughs> um, the second thing I would say is uh, the ex- that exercise is also important. Uh, we have gotten sedentary is the new, unfortunately, new normal. And but it's also created a whole host of, of problems. And there's plenty of research that shows that exercise will increase insulin sensitivity. So if you have insulin resistance, which like 95% of people with type 2 diabetes have, then you need to exercise. And that also will help you lose weight. Exercise, you know, it, we're, I've had exercise Specialists. I've had motivation psychologists that I've interviewed, and we reframe it now. It's not, you know, you could say fitness, but also movement. Just to think about it as moving, because so many people sit too much mm-hmm. for too many hours. Even, you know, we're, you and I are talking. Sure. <laughs> so it's just between driving and and being in an office in front of a computer. People are just not moving as much as they probably did even, you know, 20 years ago. So it's very important to start moving and and then to make that part of your routine, whether it's going for a walk, even a 10-minute walk. But you need to start moving. And what you want to be working towards is sort of a combination of some aerobic exercise, which helps you sweat and removes toxins from your body, increases your heart rate, and then, of course, releases, if you get your heart rate up, you get the benefit of those mood-elevating endorphins. But you don't want to overdo it. There's kind of a happy medium here. Mm -hmm. Um, And then starting out with low-impact exercise. So um, you don't want to, uh, you know, jump to, you know, necessarily trying to, you know, do a marathon. That wouldn't make sense. You should start out with walking, swimming, things that are at low impact, 
especially what I found in my work with people with obesity is that they're already putting a lot of pressure on their joints. And Mm -hmm. um, for them, it just makes sense to start out with low impact. You know, a yoga class is often a good place to start. And if you don't feel comfortable doing some exercises, just certain poses, whatever, don't do them. You know, but just a basic beginner or Pilates. There are DVDs out there. But just walking is is also good. Um, And then you can always pick up the pace. You might be uh, familiar with high-intensity interval training. Very familiar, yep. Yeah, so the good news about that is you can do your workout in a shorter amount of time because the idea is that you do, just the way it sounds, you do a high intensity where you're the pace, you pick up the pace basically. So if you were, if you were, you you can apply it actually to walking. It would be the equivalent of power walking. So you do power walking for like three minutes and then you, you do the low interval uh just like a slower pace walking for like another two minutes. And then you go the high one, you can increase it to maybe four minutes. And then you can think of it as almost resting, you know. Or if you can get up to jogging, the jogging would be the high intensity. And then you slow down and walk. And I do this myself. Um, But I find that I like to walk. I I have the luxury of sometimes uh, being self-employed of going for an hour and so I'll do that for like over a period of or a distance of a couple miles. Um, so that, or you can do it on a treadmill, and 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 the treadmill and the gym is somewhat easier because it has those sort of buttons that you can press. You know, if you can increase the speed and then slow it down. Mm-hmm. But that's the point. The point is that you can do 10, 12 minutes of a high intensity interval training a day and it's the, the benefits are the same as doing like a 45 minute exercise session. So that's where the research has evolved too um is that the health benefits are similar. But I find most of my clients are not ready to go into the high intensity piece of it. So we start with the lo- more the lower impact stuff and then they can work up to that. Yeah, that's something that came up on one of my other interviews where I don't know if it's um, if it's guilt or what it is that people are feeling, but when they neglect their health for a long period of time and then they decide they want to get back into being healthy, so they'll adopt an incredibly intense workout regimen. They want to combat unhealthy eating for months and 23 hours of sedentary life with like an hour of, you know, Navy SEALs special forces level training regimen. It's like, well, your body's not even remotely ready for that. Um, and it also doesn't really, it doesn't always reverse the effects of the 23 other hours that you spend on your butt. So I think I agree that just, you know, getting up and moving around more, even if it's just walking is a lot better than just sitting around all day. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the guidance from the research is that you should get up every hour. So, you know, what, and, and, you know, you're an ergonomic consultant, so, um, so, I mean, I was actually going to say, what do you think of those lift desks? Uh, I am using a standing desk right now as I talk to you. (laughs) So I think people can get those, um, ask for those in the workplace. A friend of mine uh, was going to ask for that. Sometimes people, I hope, I hope they're not doing this anymore, but you used to have to get a, like a note from your chiropractor or something. 
but um, but that's a good thing. I've heard good good things about that. You would know more than that, about that. But if you don't have, regardless, if you don't have that, because part of it is just not sitting. You know, it's getting up, right? Mm-hmm. That you're in a standing position. But also just walk. You know, everybody, even in the office setting, uses email, right? Even with your colleagues who are right there next door to you. So instead of relying on email, go have a face-to-face conversation with your boss or another coworker. (laughs) Um, There are all sorts of tips, you know, that, uh, you know, bring your lunch, cook, you know, plan ahead, bring your lunch. Uh, you, You know, you can control your diet more than you think even in the workplace you know and avoid some of those this was this was a trap i fell into when when i started putting on weight before i got nutrition was they would have free catered meals for for different meetings oh those are the worst and they would put out the leftovers right so Mm -hmm. and then they would send out an email to everyone and everyone (laughs) were like little vultures we would all go running over there and grab a cookie or whatever, you know. And, I mean, most of the time we would try to eat something healthy, like some fruit. Mm-hmm. But invariably you ended up with a cookie or something. And then I was like, I was just laughing to him, thinking now, you know, if I go back into the workplace, uh, you know, as an employee, I, you know, of course I wouldn't, I, you know, you just you think, well, just don't do it. <laughs> You know, so, I mean, that's just something I wouldn't do anymore. But back then, I I just thought, well, that's nice. It was nice that they put it out, but most of it wasn't particularly healthy. Yeah, I had um, a strategy for dealing with that sort of thing where the company would oftentimes get lunch for us. um, And it would just be, you know, I'm here in Buffalo, New York, so it'd be like pizza and chicken wings and stuff like that. So what I would do is I would bring in my healthy lunch and I would take lunch early at like 1130 when Mm -hmm. the catered lunch was going to arrive at noon. So I would eat my healthy lunch beforehand. That way I'm not hungry by the time it arrives. So it's that much easier to, you know, hold on to your willpower as opposed to if there's delicious smelling pizza and wings in front of you and you're really hungry. That's, that's a tough thing for most people to, to say no to. Well, that's a very important point, and why people say don't shop on an empty stomach. It's sort of, you know, yeah, yeah. And the same thing, and that's exactly that's a good strategy, you know, and that serves people well. Even if you know the holiday season is upon us, and you're going to parties, and there's going to be all sorts of you know spiked eggnog or you know fruity drinks or I mean sugary drinks, mm-hmm. uh, alcohol usually. Um, all of winter, you've got a hot chocolate. Right, and high chocolate, which is not, you know, the the pure thing. It's fine. I mean, occasionally I will have, the, you know, a little hot chocolate, but I'm making it with real chocolate, you know, and I'm yeah, not putting yeah. it in there. Um, and and even a little a... red wine is okay. The trick is, is, you know, moderation and, you know, but but I get apple cider from my farmer, and all he does is make it from real apples. You know, we were talking about juicing as well. You're better off juicing. You know, if you want, I mean, you're, if you want to have juice, you're better off just getting a juicer and doing it yourself mm-hmm. because you don't have to worry about the added sugar. Having said that, when I read a comparison of fruit, the fiber, for example, in fruit, most of the time you're, you're not using the skin, right? When you're juicing, you usually remove the skin, the pulp, gets left out 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not as healthy. You're, you're missing some nutrients, basically, when you juice. So I, I kind of got off juicing myself. Um, but the, but it's still better, you know, than buying commercial juice. Absolutely, yeah. And you can even sort of see a difference, for example, if you um, – you can see the juices that come in like the juicy juice bottles that sit at room temperature just on a shelf in the grocery store, not even in the refrigerated section. And that always seemed kind of odd to me. Like there has to be something going on here that this is able to sit out here and not go bad and not spoil. There probably has to be something added to here that's not, you know, can't be good for you, I imagine. Right. I mean, preservatives, you know, are just the way the word sounds, right? They're designed to preserve food. And a way that has been done sort of traditionally is sodium. So one thing people don't realize, too, is even healthy-sounding frozen food, and I'm not talking about the kind you make and stick in your freezer. I'm talking about more the uh, lean cuisine, you know, that's been around forever. Mm-hmm. Um, even, you know, and even some of the newer brands, read the label because the sodium on those things is just way up there. So that's important, um, another piece to understand that sodium can increase your blood pressure is to realize, you know, that, uh, you know, soups, I mean, I just cringe. My mother didn't know this, but Campbell's soup is loaded with sodium. Oh, yeah. So it says low sodium on there, and there's no downside to low sodium. Um, just, you know, I, I will buy an organic chicken broth, but I make sure that it's low sodium. Yeah, I um, sometimes buy the broth, but I usually will just hold on to the uh, the bones from whenever I, you know, cook something else and then just make the broth sure. myself, That's which... Best thing, the best is to make your own, mm-hmm. and it's you know I I do it off a whole chicken, um, but you can certainly do it from the bones because that the stock that um, the, you know the whole chicken of course becomes the meat that you can use, but then you, you know you have all this wonderful chicken broth, so it's uh, that can last forever. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely, you can do your own broth. And I have recipes for that on my site as well. Yeah, we can probably do an entire another episode just on, you know, paleo, low-carb, keto, whatever, cooking tips and different recipes that we like to go to. Yeah. <laughs> great, great. All right. Um, so just a couple other things I wanted to touch on here. Uh, I'm not sure I hadn't mentioned this before if you have any offhand, uh, but are there any good uh, – books that you would recommend if somebody is interested in learning more about, you know, diabetes and how it occurs and all those, that whole topic in general? Are there any good books about diabetes out there that you would recommend? Not to sound self-serving, but I have planned to write a book myself (laughs) to all this wonderful information because there Mm -hmm. isn't, there really isn't a good book that has kept up as comprehensively, and I take a comprehensive approach to this, so as I would like. Unfortunately, I have not found a publisher yet, so it's been on hold. But um, I think it's kind of in pieces. I mean, I I do blog. I take a a research or evidence-based approach. Um, You know, when we're talking about paleo, I think one of the big omissions here is as far as the science goes, is that there's not been enough 
longitudinal studies, which is long-term you know, research where you follow people on a particular diet for several, like 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some research that shows it has health benefits, but it has not been as well-researched as the Mediterranean or the DASH diet, which is often, you know, what the American Heart Association uh, advocates for. Um, So people tend to be more familiar with those diets sometimes, especially in the medical profession, and less so with paleo. So I think we have to work harder at sometimes convincing people. Um, I think, uh, again, you know, paleo works very well to get people is a detox and healthy, but if you're, you know, that doesn't mean you can never have a grain again. If you have, you know, again, you don't have a sensitivity or allergy. Obviously, someone with celiac disease should not be on. It's just better for them to stay off grains. Absolutely. Um, uh, But, you know, it's uh, there are a lot of details to this. So the short answer is um, that, I think my website is a good resource. I have, you know, done a lot, a fair number of blog posts um, on on these different topics that I've looked into. Um, I think I was going to mention, so I do have a bookstore as well, and there I list different cookbooks. So some of the ones that I, the paleo ones I've been quite happy with are Make Ahead Paleo by Tammy Credicott, mm-hmm. uh, Mediterranean Paleo Cooking, um, which is also by a certified nutritionist and her husband, who is a chef. So that, as a couple, they've teamed up and they produced this because he's originally from Algeria, oh, and wow. we didn't get into it. But I have a—I lived overseas growing up. I lived in North Africa, so I was thrilled to see some of the recipes I had from my childhood in here. And I have to say, this is one of the best tasting cookbooks, I think partly because he is a chef. So every I've been happy with everything in that. So these, um, and the, I'll provide the link to my resource page, and then you just go to the tab that says recipe, I'm sorry, bookstore, that has um, my favorite cookbooks. And then there's Practical Paleo, which most people know, Diane Sanfilippo. Mm-hmm. Um, who is a certified nutritionist. That that was a New York Times bestseller. So um, so these are some of my favorites. Um, I do, you know, having said that, I do work occasionally with vegetarians, and there are cookbooks for them, you know, as well. But by and large, you know, I follow. Uh, I'm not a vegetarian, but I, I respect, you know, the the decisions that people make mm-hmm. as well. Um, the other book I wanted to mention that really substantiates um, the the case, if you will, for grass-fed and pastured meat is a wonderful book by Michael Pollan, P-O-L-L-A-N, and he wrote Omnivore's Dilemma. So that's, I believe, also in my bookstore. So that will give, he he's a food journalist, and he took an investigative approach to look into these CAFOs, which is these, uh, com- um, commercial agricultural farms, or f- some people call them uh, factory farms for mm-hmm. short. Um, he spent like weeks going and basically kind of camping out, you know, investigating how on site and the conditions of the animals being raised in this. 
And then he went to really one of the original grass farm uh, here at grass farms here in Virginia called Polyface Farm. So he does a really good job of explaining all this and contrasting the difference between, you know, what, like the life of, you know, one of these. Like if you were an animal, you know, this is, this is how I'm being treated, this is how I'm being fed, you know, this is how the, what the farmer thinks. And it was really well, it's very well done. So yeah. I recommend yeah, well. I'd heard that book recommendation before, but I never got around to reading it. So that actually just made its way back onto my must-read list. Um, that uh, that farm that you just mentioned, Polyface Farm, that's interesting, actually. The guy who runs it, Joel Salatin, who's a pretty well-known promoter, person who discusses these things, he's actually right. pretty heavily featured in that documentary, Food, Inc., that I mentioned. He's a very, very, yeah. very bright, just sort of down-to-earth, intelligent guy. Yeah, I've been fortunate enough to meet him because um, he's been at a few of the conferences that I go to. And then there, there are other books, I think, on my bookstore that get into healthy fats and some, some of these more specific areas that we've been talking about. So, Great, great. So that is all on your website, which is reversediabetescoach.com. If you go to the resources tab and then under the recipes section, you can get a lot of that info. There's a, is there a separate, uh, separate? There's a separate tab for, of course, it encompasses both the recipes and the bookstore and their tabs. It should be, you just have, have to kind of scroll down to the middle of the page, the resource page, and you'll see it there. And you can just click on the various tabs. Great, great. All right. So is there anything else uh, you want to leave our listeners with? Uh, any quick tips to give them before you go? Um, I would just say that, you know, if people want um, to learn more about their own situation, um, they can sign up for my newsletter um, as well. That And they, they get my quick start guide, which is just that. It helps them jumpstart there with recipes, a meal, a weekly meal plan. So that that's a good way to kind of get started. And then I'm happy to talk to people as well. They can just use my contact form and and uh, see, you know, if we want to work together. Great. Yeah, I actually got that myself with a quick start guide that's got the meal plan. So it's a great little resource. Um, and I think that meal planning in general is something that not enough people do that can be very beneficial. You know, there's that old saying, uh, if you don't fail or those who fail to plan, plan to fail. You know, if you don't have your meals decided beforehand, then when the pizza and wings in my situation pops up at the office, it's pretty difficult to, to resist that. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to getting it, making it part of your routine, whether, you know, shopping, and then cooking and planning ahead and having a plan, like you said. It's very important. Awesome. All right. Well, it's been great chatting with you, Christine. And uh, I definitely think we're going to need to do a second episode at some point about a lot of these things that we weren't able to cover. But uh, until then, let's uh, keep in touch. Sounds great. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for tuning in. If you're a fan of the podcast, please leave us a review in iTunes. You know how when you shop on Amazon, the first thing that you look at are our products reviews? Well, reviews are super important in podcasting too, and we'd really appreciate yours. To check out any book recommendations, tips, and other resources mentioned, go to our website, duskbound.co slash episode three to see the full show notes. And while you're there, sign up to get the Duskbound Toolbox, your free audio glossary that'll simplify everything we discuss on here.